you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Acts chapter 15 this morning. Acts chapter number 15. All right. I'm going to skip some of my review this morning. There's a lot of things that I wanted to talk about, but uh, this is another one of those deep theological chapters in the book of Acts, and I want to really try to get to it this morning. Uh, really, it'd probably take us a couple weeks to really fully encompass everything that is in this chapter, but I really want to kind of do an overview over, of, of it and then really get to the application this morning, and I think it's going to be helpful for all of us. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. We're going to read it here in just a few minutes. Let me, let me start with the question. How many have ever complicated anything in life? Anybody? Oh, a lot of hands go up on that one. That was a great question, I guess. All right, well, let's, let's ask this question. Hang on a second. I have something in my shoe. I don't know if I got it, but that was very annoying to me. Um, all right, well, here's the question. Why do we often complicate things? Somebody raise your hand. Julie? Because they think they're too simple. Because we think they're too simple? Okay. Why else? Tasha? Overthink the process. We overthink the process. Okay. Violet? Then Mia? Because it's scary. Mia? Um, we're, we're like, yeah, You're stressed. Diane? For me, it's because I try to get ahead of God. You try to get ahead of God. That's good. Mary? It's fun. It's fun to overcomplicate things. <laughs> 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 Enough said. <laughs> Susan? Uh, because I think I have a better way to do it. Think you have a better way to do it? Randy? You don't listen to your wife. Hey, he said it. He wasn't on the live stream, but that was Randy Newberry. All of those that are watching, he doesn't often listen to Stephanie, his wife. Okay, we got that. So you can go back and reference that, okay? Uh, anybody else? Why do we overcomplicate things? Anybody? Yes. Sometimes we don't want to do it, and we overcomplicate it because we don't want to do it. Yes? Sometimes we're afraid or not ready for the consequences. I like that. Sometimes we're afraid, not ready for the consequences. That's good. Anybody else? Maybe one more good one. Why do we overcomplicate things in life? Colin, you got something? It's never the easy path. All right. There's, there's a lot of great reasons why we overcomplicate things in life. Uh, you know, it's almost in our DNA to overcomplicate, isn't it? I mean, things that should be simple we make much more complex. We make more of a deal than they need to be sometimes. Even think about simple chores or simple projects that really could be simple. I think of, for myself, you know, building things that have directions. And a lot of times I'm like, you know what? I don't need these directions because I can figure it out. And then I have too many screws left over. I have too many parts. Anybody ever been like that? All right, we got a couple honest people. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I do that because I don't need this. Instead of following the simple path and following the directions that are laid out for me, I try to overcomplicate it and think, okay, no, no, this is going to fit where it's supposed to fit, but it doesn't fit there. Um, I came across the website lifehack.org, and on it, it had a blog entitled 21 Reasons Why We Complicate Life. I'm going to give several of these reasons this morning very quickly, and some of you are probably guilty of this. Very first one, we procrastinate. Anybody? Yeah, there we go. There we go. Now we're getting serious. We worry. I mean, just go ahead and just put your hand up if you're, you know, if you're one of these. We wait. I mean, it kind of goes with procrastinating, but we wait too long. Here we go. Mike's trying to not raise his hand. He's doing the scratch your head thing. Like, I'm raising, but I'm not raising it. I've got fleas. Um, I'm not really sure. Um, here's another thing. Uh, we do more than we should. I was looking at my wife on that one. Um, we accept too many interruptions. All right, still raising our hands. Are you waving at me or are you kind of like, okay, okay. Wasn't sure he's like, hey, what's up? Um, we seek approval and affirmation from others. Aaron, you got your hand up? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> uh, we are not really productive because we're too busy. Anybody, anybody like that at all? Stephanie, Justin, you got your hand up? Yeah. No? All right, all right just, just making sure. Uh, Andrew? All right, good. Thank you for the honesty. Um, you know, with that being said, there was, there was a list of reasons for all of these. And on this one, 
uh, they, they put busyness and productivity are opposite ends of the spectrum. Busyness doesn't make life better. It just exhausts you and complicates things even more. But sometimes in our DNA, we have to be so busy, but we're not really productive in our busyness. Here's another thing. We aim for control. <laughs> All right, Susan? <laughs> this is convicting over here, I guess. This is deep. I like it, man. Man, spirit is alive today, Eagle Drive. Um, we hold on to the birds that need to fly away. It's metaphorically. I'm not saying you actually have birds in your house that they should fly, but you're holding on to them. Uh, let's see here. We like to participate in drama. I, I like the people that are looking around right now, the different people. We complain. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there it is. There it is, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. We don't set boundaries. Word. Okay. <laughs> Some of you are just trying not to raise your hand now. We compare ourselves to others. Ooh, yeah. There it is. We aren't honest. Eh. Some of you don't want to be honest about that. <laughs> we focus too much on ourselves instead of others. All right. We're still going. We, where are we at? We live in the past, which means we just kind of focus on some of the past failures, past mistakes. And here's another one that I have. We avoid conflict. I think many of us like to do that. Nobody likes necessarily conflict, but sometimes conflict is good. It's healthy. So those are just a few of the things that they had mentioned on this, on this blog of why we tend to overcomplicate life. And the reason I, I gave this list this morning, because here in Acts chapter 15, what is going on, it's a very deep theological chapter. This is known as the Jerusalem Council, or the Council at Jerusalem. And what is going on is a great debate, a great discussion. Uh, how many have ever been in debates? How many just love to debate with your husband or your wife all of the time, someone in your family? Yes. Husbands or wives are very good at that. You know, what I thought about doing is, you know, having a couple a couple up here today and debate in front of us and we'll see who wins and we'll gauge and we'll vote. Anybody volunteer? Mary, Justin? <laughs> what? You don't, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Ryan? Maybe an EQ. Okay, David? Oh, oh. You volunteer Randy and Stephanie as tribute. Very good. All right. <laughs> He's getting nervous back there. <laughs> Oh, this is great. Uh, but this is a great debate, a great discussion, and really it's, it's on the exclusivity of salvation. Uh, I'll try to put it in more layman's terms. We have a group of men known as the Judaizers that were coming down, and they were trying to overcomplicate salvation. Now, salvation really is a simple thing. It's believing the fact that you are a sinner, that you need a Savior. Jesus is your Savior. He came into the world to save all who accept him, but these Judaizers didn't believe in their heart and mind that salvation was that simple, that they were trying to add to salvation. And specifically because these Judaizers were Jews and they believed themselves to be God's chosen people, which is true, they thought the Gentiles that were getting saved couldn't be saved the same way that the Jews were being saved. But as we know from our study in Acts, Anyone can get saved the same way by trusting in Jesus as your Savior, by believing that he died on the cross for your sins. So what they wanted to do is they wanted the Gentiles that got saved to basically convert to Jews, to convert to Judaism. So let's, let's try to simplify even more in ourselves. Uh, again, going, it'd be like going to... Uh, it's a poor excuse or poor illustration, but going to another country and instead of keeping your American heritage, if you were born here in America, you have to convert and be of that culture. Now, you should live in that culture, but there are certain things that are part of you that are just in your DNA, then you're in your makeup. And so what was at stake here is they wanted some of these Gentiles to uphold some of the laws that were only for the Jews. And today, Christians are no different. You know, we like to debate things all of the time. You know, we like to pick fights about anything and everything. And then you have people on the opposite side who, you know, just want to get along with everyone, not fight about anything. I think there's a time and place 
to discuss, to fight, to stand up for what we believe. You have some that, that fight too much and like to debate everything, and that some that don't want to debate anything because they want everyone to get along and roses and butterflies and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there are times where we must stand our ground when we must know what is important. And really, we should always go to battle when the gospel is at stake. That's something important for all Christians. And the two major themes or questions that are being discussed here is really this. Question number one, what does it take to be saved? Question number two, what is it supposed to look like after I'm saved? So really, this is real Christianity at a crossroads. It's really a, a matter of, is salvation free? Is it a free gift of God? Or is it a list of works that we must do? Is Jesus alone enough to forgive our sins, or do I need to work in order to be forgiven? Now, there are some that believe that they must work and work and work and work and work and achieve. But the Bible that I know and read says that there is nothing we can do because it's already been done. And that is what is being discussed here. That is the topic at hand. Now, quickly, before we really dig into this, let me ask another question. How many have ever experienced this? You've wanted to pay for something only to find out there are insufficient funds. Has that ever happened to you? Don't you love that? Like, you're like, no, no, no. I know there's money in this account. And then, like, you use another card. I know there's money in this account. And then you're, like, getting all embarrassed because, like, people are waiting. Like, hey, come on. And then someone's like, here, here's five bucks. Just buy it. Get out of here. Whatever. Uh, it's an embarrassing thing when you go to purchase something and there's insufficient funds. And really, the reason I say that is because Again, on a deeper level, what, what, what is at stake here is the topic of the sufficiency of Jesus. Is Jesus sufficient? But a lot of times in our lives, and we're really going to discuss this today in EQ as well, Jesus isn't fully sufficient. We like to have Jesus plus other things. And really it goes back to statements that I've made before. You know, in the gospel, we learn that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing that we can do or we have done to make him love us less. You know, the early church has encountered a problem that has been significant throughout history. The great reformer Martin Luther in the Reformation wasn't fighting over small group philosophy. He wasn't fighting over if there should be pews or chairs in his church. He was fighting over some of this uh, uh, that, that was going on in Acts chapter 15 in his generation. He was willing to risk his life when he posted those 95 grievances on the door of Wittenberg Church because he believed that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I believe that is biblical, that salvation is by grace alone, that there is nothing we can do. We don't deserve it. It's only through the faith and trust in Jesus Christ and only Jesus can save us. And here's the main idea, and if you're taking notes, write this down. The gospel plus anything is anything but the gospel. The gospel plus anything is anything but the gospel. There are a lot of people today and a lot of religious groups and organizations that like to add to the gospel. But if you add to the gospel, it takes away the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is what transforms individuals. And as we jump into this section this morning, we're going to break it down and kind of walk through it and then give the application. What we see first and foremost is the idea of grace at hand. That grace is that unmerited favor. There's nothing we can do to earn it, to deserve it. That's what uh, makes grace such an amazing thing, that God freely gives it to us. We don't deserve what he gives us, and yet he still gives it to us. And the first thing we see in the first few verses is this, grace disputed. Grace disputed. Verse number one, just follow along with me in your Bibles if you would. And certain men which came down from Judea, it always starts here, you know, with certain individuals, certain men. Certain men came down from Judea, taught the brethren, and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we've asked this question before. But again, how many laws were there in the religious system of the Jews? How many laws did they have to uphold? 613. Ten were the Ten Commandments. 613 laws that they had to follow. Now, that's a lot, isn't it? And we talked about that a little bit on Wednesday night in our Sermon on the Mount series. Again, can anyone say that, you know what, I could probably follow all 613? No, there's no one in here 
Because even if it were 10, we'd have a hard time following 10, wouldn't we? Even if it were one, we'd have a hard time following one. So here they have a list of 613 rules, laws that they're supposed to follow. And here's, here's the big thing. There's no way that these Judaizers are following all of them. But they do what we like to do sometimes. We like to pick and choose. You know what I'm saying? We like to pick and choose what we want to follow versus what we don't want to follow. Again, let's, let's simplify it. There's these signs on the road, and it has numbers on them. Anybody ever seen those? Anybody at all? Mary, have you seen those? Okay, she hasn't seen them. She hasn't seen them. Okay, uh, let's pick on Mary Day. All right, Julie, I'm sorry. I shouldn't pick on your mom. Um, <laughs> many of us have seen these signs, these large signs with numbers on them. What are they called? Speed limit, Speed limit signs. How many have ever thought, you know what? That's just a suggestion. <laughs> Billy, Randy, Michael, a lot of people pointing fingers. Rodney, very good. We talked about that the other day. You know, he, he definitely thought it was a suggestion on Wednesday to get here on time. We're not going to talk about what he drove, but he drove just a couple over the speed limit. Right, just a couple. <laughs> I don't know why he's laughing. Um, so, so we do that. You understand what I'm saying? You know, we, we, there are certain rules, and it's like, you know what? That doesn't apply to me. Right, Billy? Right, right exactly. It uh, doesn't apply to me. That's just a suggestion. That's for other people. So again, out of 613, they've said, you know what? There's one that we want to really uphold to. There's one that we want everyone to follow. It's the matter of circumcision. We're not going to go deep into that, but there's a lot of other rules that they were not following, but they wanted to say there's one that everyone has to follow. When there's supposed to be 613 in their Jewish system that all are supposed to follow. Now, here's the thing. Again, it's about the insufficiency of salvation for entry into God's family from anyone other than a Jew. So in addition to faith, there must be works. There must be this outward sign, this circumcision. There must be an outward conforming from who they were to who the Jews thought they should be. And the same thing is done today. There are missionaries and pastors all over this country and the world that try to change the culture to another culture before trying to help the person understand what it means to be truly righteous to try to help the individual understand that it's not about, again, if I were to go to a mission field, to Europe, to Asia, to Africa, there are certain things that I'm going to bring in because of the American tendencies that I have, the American culture. But it's not about me Americanizing another area, right, Mike? Especially growing up in Mexico. It's not about his dad, let's, let's Americanize all of the um, individuals down there or wherever, wherever you are. It's about understanding the culture you're in. But it happens today because for a lot of people, and I want you to really stay with me, the gospel isn't enough. You need to erase your cultural preferences and become who I tell you to become. And again, this is deep. It's basically saying that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is not enough to save someone. So we continue on. Verse number two, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small uh, uh, dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. This question was at hand here in the Jerusalem church. So they sent for Paul and Barnabas. They came down. Now that was a journey. They had just finished their first missionary journey. Now they're traveling some 250 miles or so to get to Jerusalem. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phinis uh, and Samaria declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. So they're still trying to reach more Gentiles on the way. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church. So most of the people in the church received them well, and of the apostles and the elders, and declared all things that God had done with them. So they were excited that God was doing a work within them. But then verse number five, but there rose up certain of them, of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to be circumcised uh, of them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So the majority was, was like, you know what? We are excited that God is doing work, that God is saving all people, not just Jews only, but all people. But then there were some, and same, same is true today, even in our churches, 
that there are some that just don't like certain things, and they like to, to raise debates and discussions, and they like to fight every little thing. You know what? I have something I want to talk to you about, Pastor, and it's not necessarily always a good thing. It's all these bad things that we don't like, and that's kind of what's going on here. So there are certain men, these Pharisees, that were saved, but they believed that other things needed to be added to salvation. And again, if we add anything to the gospel, understand that we lose the gospel. The gospel of the saving exclusivity of Jesus by the grace of Jesus will always be disputed. Listen to this. Because the default mode of the human heart is a works-based righteousness, not faith-based righteousness. Religion is often built on human performance. But listen, this is important. No one has ever been saved based on your own human performance or religious observance. We talked about that on Wednesday in our Sermon on the Mount, poor in spirit. Salvation in the gospel, listen, is realizing that there is nothing you can do because it's already been done. And salvation is receiving the gift. It's not I have to work for it. Again, imagine your birthday or Christmas or some anniversary. Someone has a gift for you. Okay, you need to work for this gift. That really wouldn't be much of a gift, would it? No. A gift is, here's the gift. I'm giving it to you. I have purchased it. I have done the work so you don't have to enjoy this gift. And that's really what salvation is. God has done the work through his son, Jesus Christ. So we have grace disputed. Let's go on. We've got to hurry through this. Second thing we see is this, grace defended. So now Paul and Barnabas are there, and upon further study, what we're going to see, and again, when we study God's word, we have to understand that there is a lot more of what happened than just what we have in this chapter. You know, a lot of the sermons that we have from Paul or, you know, Timothy or Silas or Peter or some of these other apostles were a lot longer than just a few verses, and this council, I'm sure, was a lot longer than just a few verses. So we have four individuals. We have Peter, who is going to stand up for the validity and the exclusivity of salvation, that it's not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. We have Paul and Barnabas that are going to speak about it. And then we have James, who is the half-brother of Jesus and the pastor at the church of Jerusalem. So let's quickly walk through these. First thing we see is this. We see Peter's defense in verses 6 through 11. Now, Peter, if we remember back in Acts chapter 10 and 11, had already been put through this in his own right. Because remember when uh, the, the, the conversion, the salvation of Cornelius, the Gentile, God had to do a work in Peter's heart, in Peter's life. How many remember that? He had to do a work in his life, the fact that, you know what, there are certain things that you call unclean, but are not. And don't call my people, my creatures, unclean. That's the part that God was really trying to get at in Peter's heart. Now, Quickly, there's so much that I'm trying to just get through today, but the events that happened back in chapter 10, with the conversion of Cornelius and, and that sheet coming down from heaven, the vision for Peter, so we can see that, you know, what, what he thought was unclean. God said, you know what, you can eat of these things, you can partake of these, all things are clean in my eyes. But this happened 10 years prior. So 10 years have passed. Peter's been put through it. Now Peter's defending what God has already done a work in his life. And the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when they had been much disputing, much arguing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how a good while ago, ten years ago, uh, God made a choice among us that the Gentiles by mouth should hear the word of God, of the gospel. Actually, it was a lot longer than ten years ago because this is talking about when Jesus left the commandment or the great commission there before he ascended into heaven so that all the world would believe. Verse number eight, and God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. So he is saying that, hey, first and foremost, this wasn't my idea. Whose idea was it that all the world should be saved? It was God's, yes. And then he said, you know what? The same God that had the idea is the same God that also gave his spirit to not only the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Verse number nine, um, and put no differences between us and them. There is no distinction. Even though they look different, there is no distinction. We are all in God's image, created in God's image. There is no distinction in God's eyes between a Jew, a Gentile, or any other race of people and individuals. Verse number 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God? To put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples. 
which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. So he's saying this, why are you putting a burden on the Gentiles that we don't even live up to? It'd be like you have your own list of rules in your own household that you can't even follow, and then you're expecting someone in another household to follow those rules. Make sense? You can't even follow them, but I'm going to make someone else follow them. Why are you putting this burden on someone else when we can't even live up to it? When our fathers who made these rules couldn't even live up to it. You know, I like how one preacher is describing this passage, you know, kind of using his imagination. Peter's like, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I know I haven't kept all these commands. I, I couldn't even keep them all straight, you know. How far can we walk on the Sabbath day? Uh, you know, I know we can't eat bacon if it comes from a pig, but what about turkey bacon? Again, that's just reading into the text. So, um, again, the, the point Peter is making is the fact that we couldn't live up to him. Our fathers couldn't live up to him. Why are we putting this burden on someone else? Hey, if we could barely keep these laws, then why are we placing the burden on someone else? Verse number 11. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the subject of grace is heavily discussed here, that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So the same way that we are saved is the same way they can be saved. And that's the awesome thing here. And the basic point is the law just shows our flaws and our need for a solution, which is grace. That God is giving us favor that we do not deserve. He is giving us an opportunity to be saved in a way we do not deserve. We deserve far worse than what we get. And yet he is offering us a solution. Now we move on. That was Peter's quick defense. And it was, it was more than just a couple verses. We move on to Paul and Barnabas's. And in this passage, there's only one verse dedicated to it. And I'm sure they spoke more than 20 seconds. Then all the multitude, after they had heard this, they kept silence because they're listening to this. They're pondering what Peter had just said. And they're like, you know what? You're, you're right. And then they gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So then Paul and Barnabas are talking about the miracles that God allowed them to do to point to salvation. Again, the works were always to point to the word. They always displayed that. And they were showing the congregation that God displayed his grace, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles in showing miracles and signs and wonders. Now let's move on. We see James's defense. And this is, this is really where it starts. The rubber meets the road, so to speak. Verse number 13 and after they had held their peace, again, they had listened to Peter, they had listened to, to Barnabas and Paul, James, again, this is the half-brother of Christ. He is the pastor at the church of Jerusalem. Now again, he is a Jew of Jews as, as the others were, and, and really, if he can be turned from his preconceived notions, beliefs, to understanding what Jesus wanted him to understand. It wasn't that I'm just following this guy. I mean, again, I'm not trying to make light of this, but if you have an individual in your family, a brother or sister, sometimes it's hard to come to their side of how they view things, right? So James is understanding that, you know what? It's not the old way. It's this is what Jesus is telling us, and I've seen it work, and this is what it's all about. Verse number 13, James answered saying, hey, men and brethren, hearken, listen to me. Simeon hath declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So again, the reason why we have the Jews today is because God drew out a people so that all men could be saved, that they would just be the light that is shining to the world. They would be God's instrument, God's vehicle, as we've said many times before. Really, it wasn't just for Jews, but it was for all of the world, but he was using the Jews to show the Gentiles. And to this agree, the words of the prophets as it is written. So he goes back to the Old Testament. I think it's Amos. I, I could be wrong. After this, I will return and, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the, uh, the ruins thereof. And I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God all the works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble them not which are among the Gentiles, are turned to God. But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols. So he, then he gives a list of things that he is suggesting. We'll talk about this in a minute. And from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him 
being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. But in verse number 19, he's really boiling it down to this. He's basically saying, hey, hey, brethren, men and women, listen, we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles to be saved if they want to be saved. That's it. Why are we making it difficult for the Gentiles to be saved if they want to be saved? You know, there was a, uh, there was a conference I was at last year in October in Florida, and there was a pastor, I think, from Georgia there, and he was, he was uh, telling us about different churches and their vision statements they have and trying to, you know, create a vision for your church and, and implement it. And, and, he, and he told us of a, uh, a church, and I think it was East Tennessee. I can't even remember the name of the church. I really can't. But their vision statement, and it kind of comes from this passage if you think about it, but their vision statement was basically this. We're, we're going to make it hard for people in East Tennessee to go to hell. It's basically the summation of it. So what they were saying is we're going to do everything in our power to reach all of East Tennessee because we don't want to burden them down. We don't want to make it difficult for them as some churches do and some religious groups do that, you know what, you can only be saved if you, as soon as you come in the door, change your clothes, right? Now we're going to get here in just a second. Brethren, we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles to be saved if they want to be saved. And then he offers the solution, verse 20 and 21. And quickly, there's three or four things that he's telling them. First of all, don't worship false gods. So he's not just taking out all of the rules, all of the the commands, the list of 613. Hey, you still shouldn't worship false gods because how many gods are there? True gods. One. There's only one God, not a plurality like many Gentile nations believe. So he was trying to help the Gentile nations understand there's only one God. And even though your culture says there's a lot of gods, there's only one. Also, don't commit sexual immorality. In this pagan world, extramarital sex was commonly accepted. And James is saying that moral laws of God do not change. A third thing he's basically saying is, you know, when he talks about the strangled foods and not eating blood, don't offend the Jews. You know, in their custom, in their culture, there are certain things that they don't partake of, so don't offend the Jews. And, and that's, that's true for us. We shouldn't try to openly offend someone else. If we know another brother or sister doesn't like certain things, we shouldn't just put it in their face. We like to do that, though, right? Uh, you know, there were times even growing up, and, and it's, it's a silly thing, but even a dress thing. There were some people that, that we had associated with that had a very high standard of dress. So we didn't necessarily try to dress like them, but we didn't also dress down to offend them. Or if someone doesn't eat certain food, I'm just going to eat it in front of their face anyway. Ha ha ha. You know, that's, that's foolish. So that's what he's saying is try not to offend them. And then the last thing quickly, and then we're going to make the application. We've seen the grace... Um, Uh, We've seen grace disputed and then defended. And now grace is being delivered in the last several verses. And again, I'm going to kind of skip over this. I'll I'll make reference of it next week at the start of the message. But in the next several verses, and I want to encourage you to take the time to read it on your own. The the apostles, let me just read a couple verses. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church. They they, they said, you know what? What James is saying, what Peter and uh, Paul and Barnabas are saying, we agree with. So let's, let's send out certain men, chosen men of their own company to go to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, whose surname was Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And what they did was they wrote a letter after this manner. And the apostles and the elders and the brethren send greetings unto the brethren, which are in the Gentiles and the Antioch and the Syrian nations and Cilicia. And in that letter, they kind of went through some of the things that James had discussed in verses 20 and 21. That, hey, it's not about understanding that you have to add more to your salvation. Salvation is enough in the justification of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is have faith enough to believe that Jesus is your Savior. Believe it, and Jesus will save you. Understanding his grace, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. And later on you see, I think it's in verse number 31, just skipping down. When they had read, when the Gentile nations read this and the churches read this, they rejoiced. For the consolation, which means they were relieved. <laughs> Whew. Thank you. We don't have to add anything. We don't have to change who we are to become a Jew. All we have to do is accept the gift of salvation. Again, I encourage you to, to read those other verses. And the entire council, though, they agreed with James. And the fight here with the Judaizers is this. Listen to this. This is where I'm going to try to draw it home here for just a few more minutes. 
It was the fact that Jesus wasn't enough. There's more, and it's doing what we tell you. So it would be like this. It'd be like me saying that, you know what? There are a certain list of rules that I, as the pastor of Eagle Drive, enforce upon you, and you must do them. Now, there might be some today, and I know I have, but I've been in churches like that, and there's probably some that have been in churches like that as well, right? I don't want you to raise your hand. And there's a whole community of people out there on Facebook that have been in churches like that, that have been, you know, really turned off to the gospel, turned off to who Jesus is, because it's, okay, you're saved, that's great, but now you must do this the way that we tell you to do it, not the way the Bible says, but the way that we tell you to do it, in order to truly be righteous. So really, here's the overarching struggle. It's the struggle of legalism versus grace. Legalism versus grace. And the question at stake, again, is this. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus sufficient? Is grace alone enough? Write this down. When Jesus isn't sufficient, the pressure is hopeless and crushing. When Jesus isn't sufficient, which means he is not enough for you, or an individual, or a church, or the culture, then the pressure is hopeless and crushing. Verse number 24, let me just go back to there. It says, For as much as we have heard, that certain which went out from us troubled you. (laughs) There were certain men that came that troubled you, that caused great distress and confusion within the church. Look, there has been more damage to the Christian faith through self-appointed preaching and teaching than anything else. And that's really what's going on here. There are self-appointed individuals that said, you know what, I've read my Bible through a couple times, so I know everything about everything, and let me tell you what I believe. Without ever really going back to really understanding what God's Word is, and I'm not saying to, to, to preach or teach you have to go to Bible college, but there must be training There must be some kind of training to understand God's word. And there's a lot of things in my life. You know, I'm 37 now. I've been the pastor coming up on six years. I've grown up in a a Christian home my whole life. I got saved when I was four. Uh, My dad's been a pastor since I was four years old. I've grown up in this culture. There's a lot of things that I understand. But only in the past several years is, is really, in some ways, the Bible even become more alive to me because it's not just my dad's faith. It's my faith. It's things that I've studied on my own, and I've realized it wasn't that my dad was wrong on certain things, but there were certain things that maybe my dad or others, individuals, and I'm not trying to put my dad down, that's not what I'm saying here, but there are other individuals that, that, that pushed an agenda or, or preached something that as I started studying, I realized that's not biblical at all. And I was guilty of that. Because you know what I did? I, I, I took a passage or I took a, a verse and completely made it out of context. Which means, I saw this verse, and like, you know what? This verse, I don't know what the whole passage says, but I'm going to make it fit for this. Understand what I'm saying? And then when I started reading and studying it, you can do that about almost every scripture, right? You can take about any scripture and take it out of context, but when I really started exegetically, exegetically, studying God's word, basically passage by passage, and, and my dad did help me with this, but I, I realized that there are, there are, when you study the passage as a whole, you understand certain verses that we like to, you know, make our little soapbox verses, right? And there are certain things that, you know what, that, that verse doesn't mean what I was taught. doesn't mean what I thought it meant. You know, Paul was called and then received appropriate training. I mean, he spent some three years uh, with the Lord himself. And not every, again, not everyone has to go to Bible college or seminary to be prepared, but everyone needs training. And the Jerusalem council was called because self-appointed men began teaching and preaching. And this letter is telling the Gentiles to stay away from those because they're confusing you. They're creating great distress, anxiety, because they are afflicting legalism on you. And that is, the, that is one of the killers of the church today, legalism. And we're going to define them in just a second. But 
that is how a man is a driving force, and it's not just in a, a Baptist culture. It's, it's all across church culture that there are legalistic tendencies that are enforced upon the people that you must do this. And one thing I'm trying my hardest to do is not force our people to do certain things, but show you clearly from God's word what the Bible tells and what the Bible teaches. And one thing I said five and a half years ago when I came, and I'm still saying the same thing, is that what I want to do and what I desire is that we get back to biblical authenticity, is that we understand what the Bible teaches. And there might be certain things that as we study God's word, we realize, you know what, those guys, they were right. And then there might be other things, and I'm not trying to put people down, but they were wrong. That wasn't what the Bible was implying here. Again, this is what they were doing. They were saying that God's going to love you when you become a Jew. So let's go ahead and define a couple of these things quickly this morning. Legalism defined is basically this. It says, God accepts you by your works. God accepts you by your works. Now, this is a huge problem because it gives a picture of a cheap and selfish God. Basically, it's saying this. You have to be the very best version of yourself you can be, and then and only in will God accept you. Maybe one day I'll call you my child. Now imagine, imagine if I did that with my own kids. Imagine if I said to Nate and Noah, you know what? I want you to be the very best version of yourself that you can be. And if you do that, I will love you. (laughs) Is it going to create more love from my kids to me? No. They're probably going to grow up to despise me. And there are a lot of individuals and families that are enforcing that upon their kids without even realizing that. Really, all that it's doing, it's creating fear within your kids. They don't love you. They just, they're just afraid that they're never going to uh, measure up to what the standard that you have set. So, you know what? I'm just afraid of what mom and dad are going to do if I don't do this. So again, legalism is saying that God accepts you by your works. Again, you, God will love you when you become a Jew. Listen, legalism is works to be saved, works to stay saved, works against salvation debt, works to complete salvation, or works to find God's favor after salvation. There's another side of the coin. We have legalism, but then we also have legalistic. If you want to define legalistic, it's basically this. It says, God may accept you by grace, but I only accept you by works. This is important. Legalism is saying God accepts you by works. Legalistic is saying, I I understand what the Bible says. God accepts you by grace. Grace is an amazing thing. But I will only accept you based on your works. It's a worst-based, appearance-based, standard-based acceptance. And this is where many Christians live today. They live in a constant evaluating and judging of others. And I'm not trying to call anyone out today, and that's not what this is about. But this is when the central theme, listen, is all about what you do and how you look. It's when any kind of work is louder than the gospel. And this type of system, it's always comparative and competitive. The more burden, listen, the more burdened you are, to work to achieve a self-imposed righteousness, it's a fear-based theology that isn't biblical and hinders growth for many Christians. And it's the reason why many Christians turn away. It's not the only reason. There's a lot of reasons why Christians have turned away. And they like to blame others when your salvation doesn't necessarily depend solely on others. It also depends on yourself, right? To grow in the grace of God and the knowledge of God. But there are a lot of people that say, you know what, because a pastor, an individual in the church hurt me, I'm not going to uh, ever uh, forgive them, and they're all the same. You still have to grow in your own knowledge, right, Amanda? That's something we've been talking about, and that's something, you know, her and I, we've seen in our own life and our own marriage. You know, I, I know her specifically that, you know, she has said that I've grown a lot in her own life and a relationship with God, you know, since when I was a kid and growing up and in high school and college, understanding what the Bible says. How does how does that happen for you, Amanda? How have you grown? I had to do it myself. Yeah, she had to do it herself. It's not that you know what I'm never going to listen to a preacher, but she realized that it was just the, the preaching and teaching was there to just help her along, right? But she also has to do the work. 
And that's where many individuals and Christians don't because, you know what? They're not giving me what I need, so boom, I'm done with them. It's still on us. It's still on us. So we can blame other people all we want. And again, there's communities today, even on Facebook groups, that like to blame other people for how they are. I had, I had teens when I left Indiana uh, that were so mad at me when I left. Uh, I, I was a youth pastor there for seven or eight years. I uh, went to Colorado, and I knew God was really calling me to pastor one day. And I know Colorado wasn't the, the, the final stop. It was just a kind of a temporary resting place, so to speak. And I knew what God's goal was for me to, to become a lead pastor and, and to help churches out and revitalize them. But I had some of them that staked their identity on me. And basically, when they started floundering, it was my fault because I left them. I abandoned them. All I was trying to do was point them to Christ who will never abandon them and help them understand. And I tried. I mean, you can ask my wife. I tried to help them along the way, understanding that, hey, I may not be here all the time. That's reality. Maybe God moves me on or maybe he moves me on because of death. I mean, that, that, that's, that happens, right? Sometimes people die. Anybody ever experienced that in your family? Someone's died? It just happens. And I'm not trying to make light of it. So I was trying to help them understand that, you know what? It's not just based on me. I'm just there to, to try to be the spiritual guide, to try to help you, to try to equip you. But it's not based on me. It's, it's based on you. You have to do the things. Kind of like, you know, why we have a, a EQ afterwards. It's just trying to equip you to give you the tools on your own to then live it out to then make the application. But again, same is true today, even as a pastor. We've had many, uh, my wife and I, that have attacked us because they're not living the Christian life the way that they, they should because it's our fault. Many have left the church and it's our fault because the way they are. Well, maybe there's part, part truth in that, but it's also heavily on them. But we don't like to take ownership of anything, do we? But again, listen to this, this legalism and legalistic attitude that God may accept you by grace, but I only accept you by works. And again, when you're so busy, listen, trying to live under the burden of the law, it makes you sick and it puts on a burden that no man can remove. When Jesus isn't sufficient, when he's not enough and the gospel is not enough, the pressure to achieve and live up to it is hopeless and it's crushing, isn't it? It's defeating. It's heavy. It's a burden. And you feel like, I can't, I can't live up to it. I can't be this person that the pastor is trying to make me. I'm not trying to make you into anything. I'm just trying to help point you to the person that Christ wants you to be. That's why we spent so much time on identity, helping us understand where our true identity is in Jesus Christ, not in yourself. So again, listen, and we're going to talk more about it in just a second. When Jesus is insufficient, the pressure is hopeless and crushing. But when Jesus is sufficient, the pressure is gone. Let me say that again. And maybe you're not getting this today. When he's insufficient, it's hopeless. I can't live up to those standards. I can't achieve. The burden is too great. But when he is sufficient, when he is enough, the pressure is gone. It's like a weight that's been lifted off. You ever experienced that in your life at any time? It's freeing, isn't it? When that pressure, when that burden is finally gone, and, and for me, I, I think first and foremost to salvation. I was just four years old, almost five, when I got saved. But I remember, and honestly, it almost felt kind of like the story of Pilgrim's Progress, as if a weight had been lifted off of me. Wow, I can breathe now. I, what, I, I don't understand what happened, but I, I, I feel better. And, and listen to this understanding that Jesus is sufficient, that the pressure is gone. You don't live chasing an identity that's fragile. You live growing in your identity that is fully secured and fully anchored. Again, we've talked about this. Living here is fully living under grace. It's accepting that you cannot achieve your identity, but you can receive it. And the pressure to live up to has now been stripped away. You know, it's taken me a long time to get here. A long time. And I'm still far from where I need to be. And I'm not trying to be mean, but, you know, one, one message isn't just immediately going to change you. One series, as good or as bad as they might be, isn't going to change you. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be mean, but I've had people like, man, that series just changed my life and I'm so much better now. Well, that's great, but there's still a lot more to be had, a lot more learning. Because a lot of us want to think that we are better than what we are. 
And if we were to look in the mirror or if we were to have someone else look at our life, it's very easy for other people to point out our flaws, isn't it? Right? If you don't believe me, just ask your spouse. (laughs) There's things that we don't think we do and they can literally tell us some things that we do that we don't like. So we've had legalism, legalistic defined. Now let's define grace. It's basically this. It says that God accepts you based on Jesus' work and not your own work. So legalism is saying that, you know, I'll accept you by your work or God accepts you by your work. Legalistic says that, you know, uh, I, God accepts you by grace, but I'm only going to accept you by your work. Grace is saying that God accepts you based on Jesus' work and not your own work. And when you truly understand grace, you become motivated to live out the gospel. You become motivated to obey. And again, I can't fully do it justice in one 45-minute message. And one of the reasons is why people can't get over themselves and their past failures is because they don't have a proper understanding of what grace has done in their life. They're still working to achieve an identity. But you can't achieve an identity because if you're saved, if you're in Christ, it's already been given to you. Legalism is basically saying this, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Legalistic is saying, if you obey, then I'll accept you. Whereas grace says, I'm already accepted, therefore I'm going to obey. That's what it comes down to. And really there's, there's two ditches on the side of the road of the gospel. You have the ditch of legalism, the ditch, ditch of legalistic, and then you have this ditch where I've, I've kind of jokingly said before of grace gone wild. You know, I'm under grace, so I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want. That's wrong. You're not saved by grace to still live however you want to live. And you're not saved to keep working and working and working for God to love you more. He already loves you infinitely. There is no condition to his love. There are conditions sometimes to my love for my wife or her love to me or my love to my, ki- my children because I've put conditions there. But God doesn't put conditions on us. And again, you might say amen, you might believe it, but are we living like it? That there are no conditions, that there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. There is nothing I have done to make him love me less. If you're saved, if you're a child of God, he loves you infinitely. Are you getting that? So that's what it is. Grace defined. God accepts you based on his work, not your own work saying that I am already accepted. So because I am accepted, because I am loved, because I am redeemed, because I am forgiven, because I am adopted, because I am sealed, I'm going to obey. But there are a lot of people that, you know what? I'm not going to obey. I'm still going to do whatever I want to do. You're still missing it. Grace saves you from the performance of salvation. It saves you from seeking acceptance of others, and that's where many of us struggle. We're constantly seeking the acceptance of other people. And it's not about me being accepted by, you know, I I want, in a sense, to, to have the acceptance of my parents, but it's not about that. It's not about being accepted by all these other pastor and ministry friends that I have. It's understanding that I'm accepted by God, and that's enough. Whether they accept me or not. Colin, come up here. Come on. You're calling, yeah. He's like, what? All right. I think this will hold you. I want you to climb the ladder. Just, just stop right on the second step. It is decoration. I don't think... It held me, so if it can hold me, it's going to hold Colin. Now, just, just stay there. It's creaking. It's okay. Ladders creak. All right. You can kind of turn this way if you need to. I'll kind of hold it. Now, imagine, now, the Christian life in some ways, why are you trying to shake it? You're trying to fall? I mean, I can make you fall if you want. We can put it towards the baptistry, and I think there's a little water in there. All right. Now, a lot of people have described the Christian life like this. You know, it's like climbing a ladder. You're trying to grow. Understand, right? You know, when you climb a ladder, there's a purpose for it. You're trying to get to a height that you can't reach on your own. You need something else, right? You need help. Now, imagine if... Simply speaking, the Christian life, you're, you're climbing this ladder to finally get over that hurdle and then the next hurdle, the next hurdle, the next hurdle. But here, here's what happens so often. In climbing the ladder, what we have the tendency to do in our legalistic culture and churches and individuals and legalism, it'd be like Colin trying to climb the ladder, trying to grow, and I'm down here with a hammer and like, boom, I'm knocking down the step. 
I thought about doing that. What are you doing? <laughs> I don't have a hammer, okay? It's just imaginary. I really was going to bring a sledgehammer, but I decided not to. So imagine I have a sledgehammer. Imagine, all right? And I'm taking it, and I'm sledging the step under him so he falls. Basically, all right, yeah, thank you. Just stay right there. So he's falling because, you know what? It's basically saying, you're not doing it right, Cullen. You're not climbing right. There's, there's a better way to climb, so let me help you. I know, I'm hitting it with the hammer. It makes no sense, right? All right, you can go back to your seat. Thanks, bud. Give him a hand. He, he did good. He was scared, but he did good. Now, I know it's a poor picture, but I hope you're understanding what I'm trying to imply here. It's we're trying to grow in our Christian life. God has given us tools. He's given us preachers and teachers and others to try to help us climb in our spiritual life. But then there are others that are saying, nope, you're not doing it right. You have to do it this way, the way that I tell you to do it, right? So are we helping growth or hindering growth? Hard question. Hindering it, right? And that's what we do. That's what individuals, and that's probably what many of us have been raised to understand, to where we are constantly comparing ourselves to others or constantly criticizing others or judging others, right? Because they're not doing it right. So you know what? I'm going to go and knock them down and try to help them. Don't you love it when some people try to help you? And they give you no biblical reference to their help, but let me help you because I've been in church for two days, so I know everything. <laughs> or if you're like my son, Nate, at seven, Nate, or dad, I know everything. We've finished Revelation, so I, I know the whole Bible. You're seven. You don't know everything. But that's what we do so many times. You know, legalism would cause you, listen, listen, listen. Legalism would cause you to notice what everyone else is wearing. It causes you to constantly be evaluating other people. It measures people by their works. And if you think I'm wrong, go ahead and look inwardly right now, and you're probably doing that with other people. Because people walk in the church sometimes, or, or they walk into Walmart, and it's hard not to be judging in Walmart, right? <laughs> it's a poor illustration. <laughs> I mean, seriously, some of the clothes. Huh. Okay, Target. <laughs> yeah. Grace, legal, no. <laughs> Um, you, you know what I'm saying? It, it's hard not to judge that. But even in church, you know, people walk in like, they're wearing that. They look like that. And they call themselves a Christian. They think they're saved. I mean, the guy in the sound booth has a mustache and he thinks he's saved. <laughs> not Randy. <laughs> uh, we, we do that, right? It's, it's almost hard not for us to do that. It's, 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 it's like it's in our DNA, but really, understanding grace, it causes us to realize that we are not in bondage to performance. It helps you realize that your life is meant to be lived on mission. And whatever, listen, whatever God commands you to do for his glory and for his pleasure is actually for your pleasure. And they don't conflict. So the purposes that he has for your life and the pleasure that he wants you to live don't conflict, but we have been taught that they conflict. So if I really want to have pleasure in this life, I have to do it my way. I have to go about it my way. I have to choose my own path that's contrary to God's word because some man, some individual, some woman put all these pressures on me to conform and I was never living up to a certain standard. So you know what? The burden of the law was too much. It was too heavy. And really, it was realizing that Jesus was insufficient. And because of that, it was hopeless and it was crushing. But when you finally get here, and look, there's a lot of our, our church people that aren't, aren't there yet. And I'm not, I'm not, that's not being mean, that's just reality. But when you finally get here, your heart will explode in delight and consolation. As verse 31, these Gentiles, they rejoice for the consolation. They rejoice because, wow, I'm no longer under the burden of the law to work to achieve acceptance. I'm already accepted, so because I'm already accepted, I'm going to obey. And again, this is where I, I desperately want our people to get, and really every Christian to get. And there are so many people that I'm not going to obey because it's just this list of rules. There's rules in all of life. 
but I'm not going to obey because some man is trying to tell me what to do. Well, if they're trying to tell you what to do based on their word and not God's word, okay, that's different. But if they're trying to help you based on God's word, then you should listen and realize that, you know what? I'm not, it's not about me obeying them. It's about me obeying God, the creator of everything. And because I am loved, because I'm accepted, and there are a lot of individuals, there are a lot of pastors, there are a lot of staff members that struggle with this, that they still don't obey because they don't realize that they are accepted. They're still trying to work. Here's the closing truth. Grace affirmed gives you the encouragement and comfort you need to live on mission. You know, there's so much more that we could talk about, and this chapter is so heavy. But this is the debate. Legalism versus grace. What's important? Is it important for us to be legalistic and to only accept people, not based on what God did, but based on what I believe they need to do, or to accept people based on the work that Christ has already done in their life? And to realize that we're there to just help them up in their spiritual life, not tear them down. But how many of us do that? We take our own sledgehammer or our, you know, saw or whatever, and we try to cut people down because they're not doing it right. They're not living up to the standard that I believe they should live up to. And again, I dare, and I'm not, I dare say probably 90% of people in here have done that or are doing that. Maybe 95, maybe 99, I don't know. But I dare say there's a lot of us that do that without even thinking about it. So what we learn is that when grace really gets a hold of you, when you truly understand grace, when you truly understand the work that God did in your life through his son, Jesus Christ, it gives you the encouragement, the comfort you need to live on mission. And you realize that I am free in Christ not to, grace gone wild, not to do whatever I want, but to obey him, to live for him. And I find joy. I find comfort.